You're listening to Earworm, a Ramble On production by Drift Magazine. I'm your host, Coco Becker. In this show, you will hear from experts and members of the community about all things environmentalism and sustainability. Today, I sat down with representatives from Reconnect Austin and Rethink 35 to discuss TxDOT's I-35 expansion plan, car dependency, and urban planning. My name is Addie Walker. I represent Reconnect Austin, which is a proposal to cut and cap I-35 through Central Austin that has been working for about 11 years. I'm Miriam Schoenfield. I'm with Rethink 35, and Rethink 35 is a group that is opposed to widening the I-35 freeway and proposes a study into uh, a range of sustainable alternatives. So I just want to get some background history for our listeners. Could you talk about why I-35 was built not only from a transportation standpoint, but also a social and cultural standpoint? Yeah, I can start. So I-35 was built um, in the 1950s and 60s in what was then East Avenue, which was a divided two-way street that separated downtown from East Austin. And at that point, East Austin had already been heavily redlined, and so it was majority black and Hispanic, and downtown was majority white. Uh, So in the 1950s, I-35 was planned to essentially destroy East Avenue and took almost exclusively Black-owned homes and businesses on the east side of East Avenue and nothing on the west side uh, to expand that footprint and create a highway. And this was part of a much larger interstate highway system that was built under President Eisenhower in the 50s. So this happened in almost every American city that you can think of. And since then, I-35 has been this huge barrier uh, between, you know, downtown and East Austin. It's incredibly dangerous. It's become very congested. The infrastructure is really reaching the end of its lifespan. And so something needs to be done with it. But, you know, Reconnect Austin and Rethink 35 both really question whether that thing is an expansion. Yeah, um, I'll just add to that, that, you know, lots of cities around the country were in the same situation. The, The federal program was there to fund these interstate highways and choices had to be made about where to put them. And around the country and in Austin specifically, it was famously decided to put them along racial segregation lines to solidify divides between white people and people of color. So that's how we ended up here. And I've actually just been digging in a little bit. There's a to the to the history of the decision at the city level about I-35 back then. Um, and there was one council member, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he heroically was like the only person that was like, we should not do this. This is a really bad idea. And he ended up resigning from city council because of his frustration over, over this decision. So yeah, and like many, many cities around the states, highways are now nearing the end of their lifetime. And so we face, we have a second chance. We have a, a decision to make as a city, as a nation, about what we want the future to look like. And so that's where we're at today. So when I-35 was first opened, what kind of were the emotions happening at that time period? I would say that um, there was similar pushback, honestly, um, as there is today, it was just 
much less publicized and much less talked about because it was coming from majority black communities on the east side that were heavily disinvested in and disenfranchised. And so there were definitely people that that knew how much of a barrier this was going to be, how much of an equity issue, how much it was going to take from these black communities, but their voices were were very much so silenced. And the predominant voice that came out was from the state saying, you know, this is a great American infrastructure project. This is a step forward. This is progress. And and that happened in a lot of cities across the country. Uh, there's this picture from 1962 when the highway was officially opened with a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white men in suits standing around a microphone talking about how great this highway is going to be. And I think that that is not necessarily indicative of how people felt at the time. There was pushback. We just didn't hear about it as much. Yeah. And Addie and I this weekend were at a rally that was opposed to this expansion, and it was held in East Austin. And one of the organizing meetings for that was somewhere in East Austin, and and one of our our organizers, Kelsey Hughes, actually ran into an older Hispanic woman at that coffee shop or wherever who talked about her role in fighting I-35 back when it started. So th- some of those folks are still here with us today as we as we face this new round of of challenge. So it's 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 very cool that they're still here, but yeah, just like Addie said, um their voice at the time was not really part of the narrative. So people who drive in Austin know that I-35 can get pretty congested. There's a lot of traffic. Uh, Could you just explain what Texas Department of Transportation's current plan is to address the traffic on I-35, what the expansion plan is? Yeah, I love talking about this um, because I think people have a lot of intuition that's not well represented in the traffic engineering in which TxDOT engages. Um, So to explain that, I suppose, I-35 is really congested. I think anyone that drives on it knows that. Texas, the Texas Department of Transportation's plan to relieve that congestion is just to widen the highway and to add two non-tolled managed lanes, which are essentially like carpool lanes, hoping that that will relieve congestion. But there is a huge body of research that shows that when you add lanes to a highway, it doesn't relieve congestion for more than a couple years. Really, after about five years, the highway is just as congested, but with more cars. So often actually gets worse. You're talking about longer wait times, more dangerous for people trying to use the highway. And you're out for this project, 10 years of construction and nearly $5 billion. The data does show that better ways to relieve congestion are you know, expanding public transit, offering people other options than driving on the highway to get around, expanding bike and pedestrian infrastructure so that people have options. But those types of things aren't well represented in how TxDOT kind of does business in the status quo. So really their their only method, the only method that's like an approved thing for TxDOT to do is to, is to widen highways. 
Yeah, I've, I've heard it said that if, if widening highways helped with congestion, then L.A. and Houston would have the least traffic congestion of anywhere in the United States. And, of course, anyone that's driven there knows that it's it's horrible. And the Katy Freeway in, in Houston, one of the widest freeways in the world, is 26 lanes. And after it was widened, traffic commute times at peak hours increased by 55%. So it never gets better. It sometimes gets worse. And that's just because of the way that when you add more car infrastructure, that just encourages more people to drive and it encourages more development patterns that will lie on driving. So, you know, people sprawl out more. There's more parking lots, more. The whole the whole system gets built around this added car capacity, which then just fills up right back to where we were before. So it's uncontroversial at this point that widening freeways does not relieve traffic congestion for more than a few years. And yet our Department of Transportation still insists on going forward in this way. So we know that expansion projects don't work, uh, as you two both elaborated on but why do we keep coming up with these expansion plans why do we keep expanding our highways and our interstates when we know it doesn't work there are a lot of problems that run a lot deeper than this particular project so for example how TxDOT designs highways is based on a couple of adopted manuals so those come from AASHTO, it's called the Green Book, and the MUTCD, Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and I think a couple of others. But essentially, when they design a highway, they design straight to a manual that says exactly how to do it. And the manuals take a very long time to reflect recent research and community calls for better infrastructure. So the, you know, those manuals, the type of design that they are requiring engineers to do is stuff that was used in the 1960s and 70s and not based on research that we've seen in the last 10, even 20 years, that those kinds of designs don't really work. And then funding mechanisms, I would say, double down on those poor designs. A lot of uh, our funding, especially in Texas, is limited to building highways. So TxDOT, their funding is determined by the Texas legislature and they're required to spend 97% of their total budget on highways. Um, so they're really limited in you know, their ability to make good choices, even if they were pushing to do so, which I don't necessarily feel that they are. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just add, you know, I don't think it's an accident that our Texas legislature requires that 97% of the funds be used on highways. So this is one of the kinds of situations where, you know, following the money kind of gives you all the information you need to know. The, the governor who appoints the five people who basically make all of these decisions is, you know, his his big donors are owners of highway construction companies, of oil companies, and the the contractors who who build these highways are incredibly politically powerful and just have a ton of control over the over people at the legislature. So there's a lot of special interests that have a motivation for us to keep doing things this way. And unfortunately, our politics is too often swayed by those motivations. 
So at this point, the plan has been approved and construction is anticipated to begin in mid-2024. How is this expansion plan affecting homes and local businesses that are in the path of where I-35 will be expanded? Sure. Um, I actually live in Cherrywood, which is one of the, the neighborhoods that would be significantly impacted. A lot of our local businesses there are slated to be demolished and have been given notice that they have to leave, even though it would be many years before they would in fact have to leave, even if the project goes through as planned. So there was a lot of distress and anxiety, I would say. 86% of the displacements for this project are in the environmental justice category, which means they're people of lower income, people of color. And so I guess those are the impacts. But, you know, we're not, we are not set. We, TxDOT has said that this project is anticipated to begin but then, but there are still many levers that can be pulled to prevent that from happening. And so we are working very hard to make sure that that this project as proposed does not begin in 2024. How many people are going to be impacted or displaced if this plan goes through? I think the number, it's been, it's been changing as the plan has been developing. I think right now there's over 100 homes and businesses, but I couldn't tell you what that exact number is that would be displaced. That's my understanding, too. You know, in the last three years, it's gone it's fluctuated between about 100 and 200. But even that official number out of TxDOT is not necessarily representative of all of the impacts of this highway. You know, highways very much so change the land use around them within a couple of miles. It's not necessarily just homes that will be taken where their property will actually be in the footprint of the new highway, but you get homes being replaced by things like strip malls, gas stations, surface parking lots, because the land is devalued so much by having the highway near them. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that that number is already unacceptable and yet not representative of the full impact of this expansion. You mentioned that there's still multiple levers that could be pulled in preventing this plan from going through. I've seen a lot of talk online about people who have essentially given up on this cause and they said the plan's been given the green light, it's happening, there's nothing we could do. Can you talk a little bit about some of those levers that can still be prevented? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, TxDOT wants us to think that there is nothing to do. That That is the, the strategy and that is that is the sort of strategy that they always use. There's nothing to do. Everyone's hands are tied except for theirs. And that's a convenient story to tell. And I won't lie, they do have a lot of power. The state has a lot of power in this, but there are other agencies that have power. So one that does not get talked about enough is CAMPO. CAMPO is our metropolitan planning organization, and it's a regional governing body that includes Austin and the surrounding suburbs. And the federal dollars that go to fund these highways all get funneled through this metropolitan planning organization for the project. And so if our regional planning organization said, we are not supportive of this, 
they could stop federal funding from going to this project. And as of now, 80% of the funding for this project is coming from federal dollars. So our MPO has the power to really put the brakes on this. And that's just 22 people, 22 people who are local. You know, um, not all of them are from Austin. Many of them are, are not. And there's a whole complex issue there surrounding whether or not the representation on that board is fair. Um, that's sort of another topic, but also a very interesting topic. Um, but but that's just one example of, of an agency that could could stop this tomorrow if if they chose to. And then, of course, there's the federal government. And so there's the Federal Highway Administration, which interfered and did an investigation into a Houston highway project recently. So they paused the whole thing to investigate some civil rights issues that were going on there. So they, of course, have authority. And then there's also legal avenues. And, and we think 35 is planning to sue over this project and is going to be joined with other co-plaintiffs as well. So there are still several avenues that are that are open. But you know, one thing that we've been told time and time again is at the foundation of all of those avenues is really the public support. So we've been gathering and garnering more and more public support over the years, but it's really important that the public continue to join in on this fight because if the public is loud enough, we can stop this. I have no doubt about that. I'll add to, you know, we as advocates deal with a lot of burnout. This is not just like a regular nine to five job. It's very emotionally taxing and it's very hard to go up against a system that's really not designed for any sort of community input. The, the community input requirements for this project are just checking boxes. They're not really about creating a com- community-informed design. And so it's been a hard, for Reconnect Austin, it's been 11 years, but for this particular portion of the project, it's been about three years. Um, and it's been really demanding. And it's really demanding of the community when, when we ask you to stay engaged and to keep fighting. And we get that for sure. However, um, a woman I respect very much, uh, Beth Osborne, who is the director of a group called Transportation for America, says that freeway fighting is like banging your head against the wall over and over and over and over and over again. And finally, the wall breaks, but you have no idea when that last hit is going to break the wall. Um, And so it can feel futile and it can feel exhausting, but the wall eventually does break. We are seeing some successful freeway removal projects in other parts of the country. And we have a national freeway fighters network with over 60 freeway fighting campaigns. Rethink 35 and Reconnect Austin are both members. And it's just full of people doing the same things we are, you know, questioning whether freeways and freeway expansions are really right for their communities and trying to kind of change the status quo of how we build this kind of infrastructure and whether or not we really need it. And I would say that following those other campaigns, engaging in kind of the national conversation on this is really rewarding and can really help with some of that engagement burnout. So this is an environmental-focused podcast. Uh, What are some environmental concerns with, A, just having a very car-driven society, and then with this expansion plan and 
encouraging more car use. Um, we could probably talk about this for hours. So let's start, I guess, with car dependence in general, not necessarily specific to highways. Car dependence works really well for people that have a lot of resources. You know, people that are homeowners, people that have a lot of money, people that were born into racial privilege. Essentially, it, it suits you pretty well if you're living in the suburbs and commuting to a nine to five on the highway and, you know, your family has two cars and when the kids turn 16, they get cars. When you kind of think about that as like, let's say the average American, it doesn't really seem like that much of a problem. Obviously, it is. There are a lot of environmental issues with cars. You know, there's greenhouse gas emissions that come from tailpipes, but there's other kinds of emissions that come from other parts of the car. So there's tire wear, there's brake wear, there's issues with sourcing materials that go into cars. So when you have like a dirty electric grid, you're putting essentially dirty production into an electric vehicle. And I'll note that we can get more into it later, but electric vehicles, while improving tailpipe emissions, don't solve those other sources of emissions. So tire wear, brake wear, dirty grid, those are all persistent problems, even when you switch from combustion to electric vehicles. But car dependence is really harmful to anyone that can't drive for any reason. And often we kind of forget about people that can't drive or choose not to, children, the elderly, anyone um, with a disability that prevents them from driving, people that can't afford a car, people that have, you know, a family that has one car and they don't have consistent access to it. it. It's really not a sustainable solution for building cities with the expectation that everyone has consistent full-time access to a car. I mean, that's really, <laughs> that's really the issue. Car dependence just doesn't work very well. And highways solidify car dependence. You know, I-35 has been around for about 70 years now. We expect that if it's rebuilt the way TxDOT wants to, it's going to be around for 70, 80, 90 years into the future. And that's 70, 80, 90 more years of more car dependence, more requiring people to drive, even when they want to take transit or bike, but they don't feel that it's safe to do so. So they get in the car and they take a half mile trip up or down or across I-35 because no other solution feels possible. Or they don't have access to a car and that's the only choice. And that puts them in a whole lot of danger when you have really high speeds on a highway, people not paying attention to pedestrians and cyclists, people driving instead of taking transit. There's just a whole host of problems that, that car dependence causes and um, and persists into the future. I've been talking for a while. I can go <laughs> into the environmental stuff, but I don't want to take up all of our time. Um, we can we can just touch slightly on environmental stuff. Do you have anything to add? I'll just add one point, which really Addie is the expert on, but didn't touch on, which is that in addition to the greenhouse gas emissions, there are major air quality concerns um, for local folks um, that come from cars. And as Addie was saying, a lot of the air quality concerns come from the tires and the brakes. And so even if all the cars were electric, those concerns would still remain. And in fact, I have 
neighbors in my neighborhood that have had to already move because of their children's asthma problems. And that's with the current situation. If this project goes through, we would be expecting approximately another 120,000 cars a day driving through Austin. So that's 159% of what there is right now. So that's a huge increase in cars, which would have huge air quality impacts in addition to the long-term environmental climate change related ones. And the last thing I'll just say about that is that I think, you know, one reason a lot of younger folks have gotten very activated about freeway fighting in particular is because so much is at stake, you know, for the climate, for the, for the upcoming generations. And highway infrastructure is carbon infrastructure. This is really just doubling down on the very same thing that we are trying to avoid. The predicted greenhouse gas emissions from this project are the same as a coal plant. So like we're trying to reduce our reliance on coal and get rid of coal plants. And then we're basically building them right in the centers of our cities. So there is a group here at UT, a student group that is involved in this in this fight. And um, I think the environmental issue is really central to a lot of young people's interest in this. Electric cars are not the answer. What are some alternative solutions for I-35 that would adequately address the congestion concerns that we have and then also wouldn't be displacing people and like all of these problems that we've just talked about? Well, I want to note, I guess, just because I think it's interesting in a morbid sort of way, when questioned about the air quality concerns, um, which we know that air pollution is going to get a lot worse with this highway. There's there's just really no way that it won't because of the addition of so many cars, because of the construction impacts, because air pollution is already a huge problem uh, with I-35. So even if you didn't do anything to it, it would be a, a huge problem. When questioned about the air quality impacts of the expansion, TxDOT's answer was pretty much, well, with better federal regulations and a shift to electric vehicles, it's not going to be a problem, which is just hugely disappointing and factually inaccurate. I mean, like you said it, electric vehicles are not the answer. They don't solve car dependence. They certainly don't solve air pollution. Um, there's evidence coming out that they might actually make air pollution worse, because while relieving some emissions from tailpipes, the impact of pollutants that come from tire and brake wear are a lot worse because electric vehicles are on average much heavier than gas vehicles. So that pollution that comes from friction of tires meeting the road, from brakes, things like VOCs, volatile organic compounds, things like particulate matter. And then there, there was an article I just read about something I think called 6PPD that's from tire wear. Those things all get worse when you have a greater shift to electric vehicles from gas. So something interesting, but not for a happy yeah. reason. <laughs> and now on to happy things. Um, so about alter alternative solutions. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the alternatives are beautiful. <laughs> there, there are so many ways to get around. You know, if you look all over the world, there, there are so many ways that we can move about our cities in ways that are, are healthy and joyful and efficient and sustainable. So, I mean, the most obvious one for a, for a large city, you know, Austin is the 10th largest city in the nation, is public transit. 
that is the the most efficient way to move large numbers of people through a city that has worked all over the world and it it's great so so the issue is really building that and um you know austin voters voted to to spend a huge amount of our own tax dollars for project connect which is going to be you know the, the sort of new new public transit development here in Austin, including light rail and rapid bus transit and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So that is that is headed our way. And that's really, really exciting. And there is something very bizarre about us spending so much money investing in public transit to get people out of their cars and then at the same time spending so much money expanding a highway to encourage people to get into their cars. Um, it, it's almost like like, what's the point? And in fact, just to take us back to the bad news for a moment before we get back <laughs> to the bright side of things, I, I read an article recently about how, unfortunately, the impacts on car dependency of expanding a highway cannot be undone with transit. So you expand a highway and then no matter how much transit you add, that's not going to undo the impacts of the expanded highway and all of the reliance on cars that that creates because it's a kind of a cycle. Once you add more lanes for the cars, you need more parking for the cars, you need more this for the cars, more that for the cars. And so all that stuff gets built and public transit, according to this study, can't undo it. Um, so that's one of the reasons why for me, like I love transit and I hate highways and I want to devote so much energy to both of them. But right now, the freeway fight is very high priority because that's something that's not easy to undo, even with transit. But um, as far as if we didn't have to worry about highways and so forth, yes, uh, public transit is is exceedingly important. And then, of course, like the kinds of stuff that that Addie was talking about, bike infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure. And, you know, there's all kinds of mobility options, micro mobility options that like we, you know, in the future, we could get so creative, you know, golf carts and scooters and two person scooters. And, you know, there, there's so many ways. There's so many ways to get around um, that don't involve us being stuck in really dangerous, heavy, polluting vehicles. You know, this is all very interrelated to transportation infrastructure does not exist in a vacuum. So it's very closely related to land development issues, housing availability, and all of those things really are worsened by highways. Uh, we have a colleague who has been talking about shifting the use of the phrase induced demand to induced sprawl. And really that's what highways do. They incentivize land development patterns that require car dependence, and that spread people out horizontally rather than building density vertically. And there's a lot of evidence that the best ways to provide affordable housing, a mix of housing types, housing diversity, is building density vertically. And that density is also a lot more environmentally sustainable than sprawl. And so if you were to have dense available housing, really good transit, you wouldn't see as much of a need for highways. You would have fewer people commuting on them to get in and out of the city because they would have housing available in the city. They wouldn't really have as far to go for their daily trips. And if you could provide things like smaller grocery stores, corner stores, bodegas, small businesses, ground floor retail with affordable housing above it, you really solve a lot of the need for highways. There just aren't that many people taking them. And so 
you know, we often work with a lot of colleagues who work in those other spaces, but this is, it's sort of one big fight. Would you say that public transportation is kind of the golden answer to our problems? It's part of it. It's part of it. So, yeah, I just want to echo what Addie was saying is that transportation doesn't exist in a vacuum. I really I am a big admirer of uh, Jane Jacobs, who was who was someone that wrote in the 60s about cities. And and a lot of her writing talks about cities as living organisms. And just like in an organism, like you can't just talk about the lungs separate from, you know, the kidneys, right? It's all one interconnected system. And that's really what cities are. So transportation is vitally connected to so many issues and things like housing affordability, density, housing types, public health. I mean, it's all extremely connected. And so Sometimes there's like a chicken or egg thing, you know, sometimes people say, well, we can't have public transit because we all live too far away from each other and public transit doesn't work if there's not density. And then, you know, sometimes people say, well, we can't have density because we all have cars. And so if there's density, there's not space for cars and how. So these things really need to be addressed together. And it all kind of needs to happen at once, you know. Um, so we need to be working on all of those fronts together. But so public transit is definitely a very key component, I would say, to to the solution. And I'll just also add that this is a very exciting time, I think, for the city of Austin because we have elected officials at city council and lots of advocacy groups throughout the city. There's a lot of momentum for this whole cluster of interconnected issues involving density, affordable housing, sustainable transportation, equitable transportation, and all of these things fit together in a really beautiful way. I hear some people make, I guess you could call them jokes, about, oh, every time, I heard this a couple weeks ago, every time I see an abandoned plot of land or an abandoned building in Austin, I am surprised that there's not already a high rise there. And this is often said in a negative sense, but housing density, it's a part of the solution. And so what would y'all say to those kind of remarks? Oh, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. I guess what I would say is that when we are pushing for, you know, more housing, better land use, we're not pushing for high rises on every lot. We're pushing for options. And Austin has a real problem with not having what's called missing middle housing. So there's, you know, single family homes in the suburbs on one end of the spectrum. And then there's high rises downtown on the other end of the spectrum. There are so many housing options in between that Austin is really, really missing. So, you know, condos, duplexes, triplexes, townhouses. Austin has a number of five over ones, five floors of housing over one floor of retail. And those aren't necessarily universally loved, <laughs> but they are somewhere in between a high rise and a single family home. 
So I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but Austin is moving towards legalizing some of those options. It's called Home One and Home Two that City Council is working towards right now. And those would really, really help with providing housing in a way that doesn't get a whole lot of pushback from neighbors. There are a lot of ways that you can um, keep a neighborhood's so-called character that we hear often uh, from community groups while providing housing for people that need it and not contributing to this huge affordability crisis that we have in Austin. And you don't necessarily have to build a high rise on every lot. And I I think that links back to the transportation discussion, too. You know, I'm not always fighting for Reconnect Austin's vision. I'm fighting for a better project, for the option of a better project, for at least our community voice to be heard. I think whenever you have more diversity, whenever you have more options, everyone benefits. Yeah, um, I think... So often, and and I'll confess that when I first was learning about a lot of these issues, I felt the same way. Like when someone said the word density, what I envisioned was a whole city of high rises, you know, basically that the vision is to make all places look like Manhattan. Um, And I lived in Manhattan and I didn't like it. So that so that was not (laughs) for me. Um, But that's that's not that's not the vision. Um, The vision is, like Addie said, more options. There's a really great book called Walkable City by Jeff Speck, and he actually computes in that book, and I can't remember the numbers, like basically how much density do you need for public transit and walking to work well? And you don't need to be Manhattan (laughs) to have a walkable transit-oriented city. You need a lot of like three to six-story buildings or something like that. So uh, high-rises certainly have their places in downtowns where there's huge, huge demand for office space and housing space and so forth. But what we need in order to have lovely, walkable, sustainable environments is not high-rises on every lot. So there there are many, many options in between. Would you say that there's like barriers preventing us from increasing density, moving towards public transportation, kind of moving towards these like solutions that we have discussed? And what if you would say that there are barriers, what are those barriers kind of preventing us from that? I think that there are a lot of policy and process barriers, but not necessarily like lack of community support barriers. I think I see, especially among young people, a huge appreciation for and call for more density, more options, housing affordability, fewer highways. Those things are kind of becoming widespread, especially amongst the younger generations. And the issues to building them, I would say, are are in policy and process, not in what people want. I think that also, you know, imagination is plays such a big role when we think about what kind of places do we want to live in. And I think a lot of people have only experienced one way of living in a place. And it's very frightening for them to imagine the place changing. But, you know, so often people go on a trip and travel somewhere else. They go I don't know, to Europe or to Asia, and they, they experience a very different way of people sharing space and moving together, and they like it and they enjoy it. And so I think part of it is also just really exposing people to 
to the different possibilities that are available to us. And I think with all of the internet and social media that we have today, people are much more kind of tuned in to ways of living and ways of being that aren't their local environment. And that that really does spark the imagination and, and, and spark enthusiasm. Um, and, you know, so much, you know, we've talked a lot about the sort of practicalities of this, you know, getting around efficiently and having housing that's affordable and so forth. But but there's so much more to this, too. You know, there's 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 community, there's social connection, car dependency also increases loneliness and and having public spaces for people to gather, having, you know, walking and, and getting to know the people that you pass every day or the people you see on the bus. So much of that is also about building community and connection, which is really important, I think, for our souls, especially at this time, given the climate crisis, given everything that we're, we're facing these days, um, having our built environment support our connections to one another is is really important that's an excellent point you brought up thank you i was speaking with someone about a week ago and i've talked about this before with other people a lot of people will mention i don't know the research behind this that people love their college years so much because it's a walkable community me as a college student i hardly ever get in a vehicle because I can just walk everywhere. And so the idea is that if we transitioned all of our communities to walkable communities, then we would all be happier. (laughs) And then a counter I have seen for that is, well, if that was the case, everyone that lives in New York City would be happy. Mm. (laughs) Um, So what do you have to say to that, you mentioned that you used to live in Manhattan and you didn't like it, but it is a walkable community. Man, that is such a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I have to say that, you know, I only lived in Manhattan for two years. So, you know, I don't know, maybe I didn't give it a full chance or something like that. But I, I do remember struggling with putting my finger on exactly what wasn't working for me there. You know, one thing people talk about in terms of environments that are supportive to sort of joyful living, community, social engagement are things being human scale. And I've never exactly understood what that word means, but I think it means like, you know, more six-story buildings, less 30-story buildings. And, you know, just to emphasize, I do think high-rises have their place. I do think it's great that there's Manhattan. Lots of people love it. But we sort of react emotionally, I think, to all kinds of aspects of the of the built environment. And I think, honestly, like, we don't fully understand yet as, as a culture the very nuanced ways in which the built environment affects us. So for me, Manhattan didn't work. I've lived in lots of other walkable places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I adored. I lived in Chiang Mai in Thailand, which I loved. So I've lived in lots of walkable cities that worked very well and did to me feel kind of grounding and and connection oriented. And Manhattan, (laughs) Manhattan wasn't that for me. But I don't know, Addie, do you have anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I suppose my first thought is that I think it removes a lot of nuance to just say 
that if everyone lived in the perfect walkable community, they would all be happy. (laughs) You know, that's not really a fair thing to say. There's a lot of reasons why people experience loneliness or unhappiness. And really living in a walkable community-centric place does not necessarily make you happy, but it can remove a lot of things that contribute to unhappiness. So, you know, that kind of isolation that you get when you're essentially waking up, getting in your car, going to work, getting in your car, coming home and going to sleep. There's not a lot of community in that and not a lot of outside time that really helps people. So I guess I guess that's my first take is I, I think walkable, community-centric places can improve our mental health and remove those barriers to unhappiness but they don't they're not necessarily a panacea I mean nothing is and then my second thing to say I guess is that I think a better representative of a walkable community-centric place than Manhattan is actually here in Austin uh, which is the Miller redevelopment of our old airport you know, you see people flocking to it on the weekends because it's walkable. Traffic is pretty slow where there is car traffic. It's very bikeable. There's trees, there's parks, there's pools, there's coffee shops and a farmer's market. And like Miriam said, it's very human scale. You know, everything is is kind of human sized. <laughs> Nothing is oversized. Um, so it's all, it's easy to take in. It's easy to see people. Every time I walk around, you know, I see people that I know. It has hiking trails and and people really, really love it. Unfortunately, that's evidenced by how expensive living there has gotten because it's so, so desirable that, you know, for the market housing in Miller, it's really only accessible to the upper middle class, which is really unfortunate because everyone deserves to live in a place like that. But yeah, I guess, next, you know, next time people are like, oh, well, everyone should be happy in Manhattan. Maybe that's a better example of, of people really showcasing how happy that area makes them. I personally live in a high rise. It's no Manhattan high rise, but it's an Austin high rise. (laughs) And when you walk on the street below those buildings and you look up, it can make you feel very small. It's these big towering buildings. This is not to like discredit those buildings or anything um, or discredit Manhattan. But I totally I see what you're saying. Whereas these smaller human size things uh, are more community focused. Yeah, there's some interesting data that says um, human beings can really recognize other human being faces up to about six stories away from each other. So if you're looking at a person on the street from the sixth floor of a building, you can recognize a face, you can make sort of an emotional connection with someone. But higher than that, you really don't, your brain doesn't really process it as another human being. You can't read emotions on a person's face. And so I I think Miriam said it really well. There is a place, certainly, for high-rises, but they're not the perfect density solution, for sure. And I I don't think that they're great for building communities, specifically because, you said it, they're not human-scaled. So coming back to I-35, at this point in the expansion plan, how can me, myself, or our listeners get involved and make a change? Well, are, mo- are most of your listeners UT students? Uh, yes, they are, <laughs> but this does go on Spotify, so 
technically anyone can listen. Okay, great. Um, well, let me say some things specific to UT, to UT, yeah. um, and then yeah, we can talk about the broader the broader public. So um, there there are some great there are some great groups at UT that are involved in this issue and related issues. We think thirty five has a has a UT student group, and anyone that's interested in in joining that group can. Um, go to rethink35.org, sign the petition, and check a box, and that will put you on the UT student group mailing list. So that's a very direct way to get involved with this specific issue. But the Rethink students are also working with other sort of groups that work on issues that are in the whole cluster of issues we've been talking about. So there's actually going to be an event a week from today that is being organized by Students for Housing Transparency. Check them out on Instagram. Uh, and there, there's information there about that event. But that's going to be specifically about um, expanding uh, the kind of housing that we see in West Campus um, to other areas of the city and also just like improving the the basically the housing plan for universities. So that's um, that's a, that that would be a great event to go to and to learn more about about some groups. Um, there's also a new group called the Longhorn Urbanists that are, are kind of interested in all kinds of city related stuff. And then Students Fighting Climate Change is another sort of environmentally focused UT group um, that also works sometimes with the Rethink 35 group. So there's lots of ways to get involved on campus. And I'll say that I've worked a lot with the kind of campus level organizing around the I-35 issue, and it's been extremely impactful. Actually, the first city council resolution about I-35 made explicit reference to rallies organized on college campuses and high school campuses um, about I-35. So um, I'd really encourage students to get to get involved with that. And then as far as the, you know, the broader public like I said earlier on, the, the public engagement with at this point, it's really it is so crucial. There is so much that can be done and we see the momentum growing month by month. And that is what makes this movement possible. So I would say for Rethink 35 in particular, anyone can go to Rethink35.org. There's a Get Involved page and there, there are lots and lots of ways to get involved. At the moment, we are an all-volunteer group. And so... We have, you know, we're also a community of people and there is really a place for anybody that wants to get involved in this to join this movement because because we really need everybody (laughs) to join the movement. I think it's really important that people stay informed about this project. DOTs utilize to their advantage the fact that these projects take a long time. So they expect you to kind of stop paying attention at some point. So just paying attention is a huge way to help us with this fight. There are a couple of journalists that are covering I-35 really, really well. Nathan Bernier with KUT has been following this project for years, um, and he always, he just does such a great job reporting. You know, he doesn't cut corners. So if you're looking for kind of one source to keep abreast of what's going on, I would say Nathan Bernier with KUT. Megan Kimball is a now working as a freelance reporter in Austin. She's written a book about freeway fights, um, mostly focused on Texas, that's coming out in April. It's called City Limits, um, and you can pre-order it now, <laughs> um, which supports her. But it also helps tell 
publishers that people are interested in learning about this stuff. And you can follow Reconnect Austin and Rethink 35 on social media, and we will post updates and opportunities to stay engaged. But the main thing is to talk to people about this. Talk to your friends and your family, and you don't have to know every single fact or every little piece of history, but just help people understand that this is happening in their city and what it's going to mean for the future. And, you know, that doesn't always have to lead to volunteer opportunities, but just talk about it. Bring it up at the dinner table when you can. You know, text your friends when you can. It all helps. And there has been so little transparency to communities about these projects for the last 70 years that every little bit helps, you know, move us in the right direction. So I think a lot of people kind of feel like this issue is so much bigger than them. And so what I'm hearing from you too is like, we can all make a change. We can all make a difference in that. Yes, this is a a bigger thing. And, you know, we just talked for we're at 57 minutes right now <laughs> um, about all these little nuances, but the problem isn't bigger than us. And so even students, um, family members, we can all contribute in some way. Yeah, you said it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, let me just say, you know, this is something I've thought about in terms of like my own choices of where to get involved, because I'm passionate about environmental issues more broadly. And for me, actually, like hot freeway fights are kind of like the perfect middle ground. Like on the one hand, you can like, you know, scrub out your peanut butter jars really well and put them in the recycling and and you feel like, okay, I'm doing my little part, but what does that really matter in the big scheme of things? And then on the other hand, there's like taking up, you know, the big oil companies changing you know, international policy. And you're like, okay, whoa, that's like so out of reach as far as what I can influence. But but freeway fights happening in your community, like literally, like if we're at UT, like literally down the road, that is your contributions there really are impactful um, because people are listening to the local people that live here. That That is a voice that, I mean, they don't listen to us enough, but <laughs> that is that is a place where, where your voice can really matter in the environmental movement more broadly. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add that I didn't ask about or I didn't touch on? I know like this is a topic that could be talked about for so long, but kind of opening the floor um, for you two. I don't think so. I, I, I mean, as someone that has, you know, done some work with the, with the students on, on campus, I'll say that I, I'm very inspired by working with with students. Um, and I'm, there were a bunch of students that showed up at the rally yesterday and they had this big banner that said, our future is not freeways. And it was really, um, it was really inspiring. And Addie and I were both at a national gathering recently where there was a, a, a freeway activist who, who started freeway fighting in seventh grade and has been really impactful in organizing protest, like high school students protesting in front of their Department of Transportation on a weekly basis, you know, and it's just very, um, it's, it's a very beautiful thing to see. So, so for those of you who are listening to this, who, who have been involved and who are interested or engaged really in, in anything at all, um, you know, I, I feel very grateful and, and inspired by all of the, the students who, who care about the world that they're going to be inheriting. Yeah, I, I second that. Um, 
And I think there's no right way to care about your community and your future. So if you want to get engaged and do door knocking and handing out flyers, that's good. That's always been really hard for me. So, you know, I manage our social media and that's something that's more comfortable for me to do. If you want to come to an event and just sit in the back and kind of see what people are talking about, that's a good way to get engaged. If you just want to watch some videos on YouTube about like Paris is doing a great job of transitioning from car dependency towards bike infrastructure. Those are all really great ways to kind of get involved and there's no right way to do it. So I would say follow your interests and and reach out to people. You can reach out to us. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we always want to meet new people. We always want to help people kind of get engaged and care about their communities. Um, and we both are also connected to a lot of other nonprofits and community organizations working in Austin. So if you're interested and you kind of want to get engaged and you're not sure where to start, you can talk to us and we'll hopefully help you find somewhere. Okay. Uh, well, I think that will kind of be where we wrap up. Thank you to so much for uh, joining me today. You've been listening to Earworm, a ramble on production by Drift Magazine. Drift is a student-run outdoors and environmental publication at the University of Texas at Austin. Title music by Alejandra Gabrielanes. I'm your host and editor, Coco Becker. Thank you again to Addie Walker and Dr. Miriam Schoenfield for sitting down to talk with me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Earworm. Follow us on Instagram at rambleonatx for sneak peeks of our latest episodes. We'll see you in the next one.